Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Avinu, we thank you for your goodness and your presence this morning, and we pray that your love would fill our hearts and that your Word would penetrate our hearts so we can hear from you and come away different, Lord, and that you would build up your community, O God. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. In the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, Alexander has many bad things happen to him. Raise your hand if you're familiar with this this, uh, classic of literature. Yes. Okay, very good. So he wakes up, and what happens? He's got gum in his hair. Has that ever happened to you? Not fun. His brothers at breakfast, they all find prizes in their cereal, but not Alexander. Womp womp. He gets smushed in the center seat on the way to school in the, in the carpool. He's smushed. He wanted an aisle seat. He wanted a window seat, right, to be able to, uh, to see out the window and see everything, but he was smushed in the center. And not only could he not see, but he was uncomfortable. And it turns out the teacher didn't like his drawing of an invisible castle. Every time, this is true, this is what happens. Every time something bad happens to him, he threatens to move to Australia. That's what he says. I guess I'll just go to Australia. It's one catastrophe after another until the end of the book when you expect his mom or or someone to say something to make everything okay, right? Something like, it's not so bad, or maybe tomorrow will be better. That's what I was thinking would be at the end of the book. But uh, this is the only consolation he gets. Some days are like that, even in Australia. And that's it. That's how the book ends. Our world doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it's a bad day or, or even longer season of, of many years. And we wonder if we, if we packed up and moved to Australia, like Alexander, if things would somehow improve. When we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, platitudes don't always help. We know, we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him those called according to his purpose. But just saying that to someone who is hurting, it doesn't always ease the pain. And if you're not going through a season of suffering, then I bet that someone you know, someone you love is. It's part of this broken world. It might come from reading the headlines. It might come from our own experience. As a congregational leader, I get to hear people's stories, and sometimes I I hear about their triumphs and their praises. I heard a a really awesome testimony from from my brother Jacob um, this morning, uh, and uh, if you ask him, I know he's excited to tell you about what God did for him this week. But also, I hear their grief, and I hear their hurts. This is 
Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat before Tishbaav. Tishbaav is a fancy way of saying the ninth of Av, right? It's like asking when is the fourth of July. It's that's when it is, right? That's the name of it. Okay, and this is a date when we remember the first and the second destruction of the temple, the the holy temple in Jerusalem. Now to us. Uh, now, from this vantage point, it might not seem so bad, but at the time, this was very traumatic. It was seen as a sign of God's wrath, both by the Jewish community and later by Christian theologians. This was supposed to be, remember, the temple is God's presence on the earth, and it's the seat of his throne. It's the place of atonement, right, through animal sacrifices, and then it's gone. And we also remember other things that happened uh, that have befallen our people on or around the ninth of Av, right? Um, Traditionally, this is the day that God decreed that we couldn't enter the promised land, but instead we would wander in the desert. This is the day of that uh, is connected to the expulsion of all of the Jews from Spain happened on or around Tishba Av the first deportations to the Treblinka Treblinka concentration camp during the Holocaust also happened around this time. Tish B'Av is a traditional day of mourning for the Jewish people. So it's when we set aside time to lament these events that have grieved us. So what is lamenting? Is Is it just like kvetching, right? Is it okay to kvetch sometimes? Well, it depends on how you complain, right? There's complaining against God, and then there's complaining with God. The Israelites, I think they like to convince against God and against Moses in the wilderness, saying they they liked the food way back in slavery so much better. They complained against God rescuing them, right, and feeding them manna. Literally, this is bread from heaven, that's falling from the sky, and they're kvetching, right? So that's one kind. But then there's another kind. There's kvetching, which seems to be more kosher in, in the Bible, right? There's a, in fact, there's a whole genre of biblical literature called the lament. Did you know that? There's psalms of lament. There's laments in books of, uh, of Job and Jonah. There's even a whole book called Lamentations, Right? Okay, which we will read through tonight. So I'm excited, right? But what good is it to lament? What's the point of that? Well, part of it is an assessment of where we are, what we're going through, right? It's, it's being aware of those things and also what we've been through. It's okay to bring your troubles before God. And we see that in the laments. The lamenter cries out, Lord, why? Why am I going through this, right? In the book of Ruth, Naomi's husband and sons all pass away in the land of Moab, and she returns to Bethlehem stricken and bitter, and she cries out and lament, right? And she says, the hand of the Lord is against me, because that's how she feels. Jonah cries out and lament in the belly of a fish, but hey, wouldn't you do the same? Yeah, it's not, it's not pleasant, right? Jonah says, I've been banished from your presence. He cries out. 
David cries out, my God, my God, why have you left me alone? Where are you, Lord? Why have my enemies overtaken me? I'm a, I'm a worm. I'm despised. I'm surrounded by wolves. Lord, help me. You ever felt that way? Yeah. This is from Psalm 22, which comes up again later in this week's New Covenant portion. So there's another, there's this, that Psalm of Lament appears in the, in the Gospel of John. So we'll remember that. The point is, is not just it's okay to, to complain, but even it's even better to try to find God in the midst of it. And even though it seems as though God is absent, he is very much present in some way. That is the, the tension of the lament, the complaint. It seems that the hand of God is against me. That's what Naomi says. Lord, where are you in, in this? Yes. Yes, he's there. He's, uh, he's like the fourth man in the fiery furnace, right? Daniel's three friend, friends were in the thick of it, and the Lord was there with them. He's there. There are three Haftar portions of rebuke um, in the past three weeks, including this one. And, and then after Tishba'av, there are seven Haftar portions of consolation, of comfort, from the second part of Isaiah, which gives us hope. So here's a sample of the beginning of uh, Jeremiah. This is uh, from the Haftarot of Rebuke, and these are things that we've been reading through. We've been reading this from the Bema uh, for the past three weeks. This is what it says. See, today I've appointed you over nations and over kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You weren't expecting that last line, were you? We get the sense that there is disaster coming, that there's suffering, but it's, it's for the purpose of replanting, to tear down for the purpose of building up. We don't always suffer because of our sin and rebellion, but even if we do, we are, we are being disciplined by God. It's not to utterly destroy us, but it's to rebuild us. And a few lines later, we see this. Yet I brought you into a fertile land to eat of its fruit and goodness. When you came, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The Kohanim, the priests, did not ask, where is Adonai? We're supposed to ask, right? Where is the Lord? The Torah experts did not know me. The shepherds rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after unprofitable things. Therefore, I will give up on you? No way. What does he say? I will plead with you again. It is a declaration of Adonai. I will contend with your children's children. He's going to contend. He's going to plead, right? In the midst of the destruction and the hurt is not a taskmaster God. It's not a God who is wrathful, but rather a God who is jealous for us, a God who longs for us. He wants us to ask, where is God? He contends with us. He pleads with us again. Jeremiah describes how we tend to dig broken cisterns, and those are the idols, and those are the addictions. Like, you know, for example, today, it's the, it's the screen on our phone, right? And uh, we just, 
we just get into that, and uh, or or we get our 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 worth, our value from others rather than from God. And meanwhile, God is offering us living water. We're digging in this broken well, and right here, the Lord is giving us living water, water of life. Rabbi Russ Resnick puts it this way, quote, in Jeremiah's prophecy, God is outraged at Israel and ready to bring judgment against them. But God's anger is not so much about broken rules and violated commandments. Rather, it is the anger of a betrayed lover or friend. Israel's failure, our failure, is relational more than behavioral, although bad behavior flows out of broken relationship. God is astounded that we would choose our own ways and resources over his abundant supply, that we choose our broken and bound up selves over him, but we continually do. Even in the religious realm, we choose the broken cistern of our accomplishments and credentials, or we perseverate over our lack of the same in place of humble reliance on the merciful, ever-giving God, unquote. There's a shock at the destruction and pain, but there's a sense that God is, is in this in some way. Adonai has afflicted her, but for the purpose of drawing her back. It's a way to recognize how we've fallen short when we lament, right? We don't deserve all the bad things that happen to us. I mean, just look at the story of Job, right? That wasn't his fault. But sometimes there are ways in which we've turned away from God, which are illuminated by our suffering, illuminated by what we're going through. Take this week's Haftarah portion, for example. This is from Isaiah in the first chapter. Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for Adonai has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, and the donkey its manger, but Israel, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oy, a sinful nation a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons dealing corruptly. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised Israel's Holy One. They have turned backwards. We can humble ourselves in our difficulties, and we can consider whether we have in some way turned away, and we can consider if we need to repent. We can acknowledge our falling short not to beat ourselves up and increase our suffering, but to receive the love and restoration that God brings to restore us, to con console us from our suffering. We've come to the part of the Gospel of John which discusses the death of Yeshua on the tree, commonly called the crucifixion. According to Rabbi Mark Kinzer, the timing of this coinciding with the season of Tishbaav is deliberate, right? That's how he designed it. This is a quote from uh, Rabbi Mark. The cycle, that's the, the, the New Covenant reading cycle, reaches its climax with the narrative of Yeshua's death between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. That's this evening. When the Jewish calendar enters a period of mourning for the destruction of the temple, and three haftarot of admonition or rebuke are read. 
It reaches its joyful conclusion with seven readings related to Yeshua's, what happens after his death? Resurrection, right. Corresponding to the seven Sabbaths between the ninth of Av and Rosh Hashanah, when the Haftarot of Consolation from the latter chapters of Isaiah are read. The cycle thus points us to the truth that Yeshua, as the King of Israel and its representative, embodies in his person the meaning of the temple, the holy city, and Jewish history as a whole. His suffering sums up and purifies Israel's suffering, and his resurrection will bring about Israel's ultimate restoration, unquote. Amen, right? There are a few ideas here that I'd like to draw out. Number one, uh, what I hear is that the suffering of Yeshua, his willingness to be humiliated and beaten, tortured, means that our sufferings make sense. After all, if Yeshua was a way to God, why would he go through all of that? But he isn't just a way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. His death on the tree not only displays his divinity and the life we have through his death, but his compassion and love for us, knowing this was the only way. The other thing I, I see here is that death comes before life and restoration. That this moment of Tishba'av leads to a second period of comfort and consolation. Consuelo, right? In other words, if we're going through it right now, it means it's not the end of the story. The end of the story, we know, is restoration and hope. It's renewal every tear wiped from our eyes. If we're not there yet, it means we're not there yet, <laughs> but we'll get there because Hashem is faithful. So with that in mind, let's turn to this episode in the Besorah of John. And I want us to try to picture this because this is what John shares with us about this crucial moment in history. Then they took Yeshua. He went out carrying his own crossbar, the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Yeshua in between. Pilate also wrote a sign and put it on the execution stake. It was written, Yeshua Hanatsrati, Yeshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many Judeans read this sign because the place where Yeshua was executed was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The ruling Kohanim, the priests of the Judeans, were saying to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written, Pilate answered. So the soldiers, when they executed Yeshua, took his outer garments and made four parts apart for each soldier. They took his tunic also, but it was seamless, woven from top to bottom in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. So this was so the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Guess which, which psalm that comes from? It's Psalm 22. 
the, the Psalm of Lament, which also shows a kind of crucifixion. And it, it's sort of, it's, it's an amazing uh, prediction of the suffering that Yeshua went through. I encourage you to read it, Psalm 22. So standing near the execution stake of Yeshua were his mother, his mother's sister, Miriam, the wife of Clopas, and Miriam from Magdala. Yeshua saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He tells his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he tells the disciple, behold your mother. From that very hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Yeshua knew that all things were now completed, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they put a sponge soaked with sour wine on a hyssop branch and brought it to his mouth. When Yeshua tasted the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the next day was a festival Shabbat, so that the bodies should not remain on the execution stake during Shabbat. The Judean leaders asked Pilate to have the legs broken and have the bodies taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and then the other who had been executed with Yeshua. But when they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He who has seen it has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of his shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. I think the last line here is perhaps the point. It's hard for us to look on the one that we have pierced with our sins, with our failings. The water that came from his side is a part of this testimony, according to John. This is the water of life, the water of consolation, the water of the comforter, or the Holy Spirit. From his death, living water for us. The rock in the desert struck, and the life-giving water comes out for the Israelites repeated here in the gospel. Water which he used to wash his students' feet. And then there's the blood. The blood that comes from his side is of the sinless Passover lamb, which according to the Torah should not have any of its bones broken. Exodus 12, 46. We partake of this blood in the Lord's Supper symbolized by the wine, which we will do after our service up here. The symbols are woven in and out of the story of John. Blood, water, bread, wine. We see the quotes from Psalm 22, which we actually heard earlier. And we see that Yeshua is, in some ways, the perfect kvetcher, the lamenter of lamenters. Not only is his complaint normal and understandable because of what he's going through, but it helps us to connect. We know we can cry out to God when we're hurting. The Lord himself did it, and we follow him. 
But what does the death of Yeshua mean? It means that he gave himself. He gave his life for us. He lowered and humiliated himself to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures. This is why Paul can write, I only want to know one thing, Messiah and him crucified. That's all Paul wanted to know in his life. When we look at the one who was pierced, it gives meaning and hope to our troubles and our suffering. It gives renewal to our repentance and our fasting on Tishba'ah. Like our readings, we also are going from rebuke to consolation, from lament to hope. Because the one who is pierced, the one who suffered and died, was also raised to life. First death, then renewal, back to life. A righteous person goes through many trials, the psalm of lament tells us. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. So what can we do when we're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season of life, like our friend Alexander? We can lament. Yeah. We, can, we can look on the one whom we pierced. We can humble ourselves in repentance. We can remember that God is for us and loves us through suffering. And that Tishba'av is just one part of the story. It's not the end of the story. Yes, the temple was destroyed, but it is being rebuilt. Yes, Yeshua suffered and died, but he was raised. And the same Ruach that raised Yeshua is raising us. And finally, we can remember that the love of God is a no matter what kind of love. I don't know what you're going through, what your loved ones are going through, but I know he loves you. What was it that compelled Yeshua to go through this suffering? It, it must be love. You know, I can say the wrong thing to my wife. I can make all kinds of mistakes. She loves me anyway. I can offend my mom and my dad. They forgive me. They love me anyway. And these are just a shadow of how the Lord feels about you. He loves you. He loves you anyway. I'd like us to close with a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, because I think it captures um, the, the way that we can look on the one whom we pierced in a way that brings wholeness and comfort and new life. So I want to encourage, if you know this, um, to please sing this with me. Amen? Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a 
treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Yeshua, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. Avinu, our Father, we thank You that You are good, and Your goodness and Your love are enough for us, and that you sent your son, Yeshua, to die in our place and to fulfill the scriptures and that when we are going through it, we can cry out to you and we can rely on you and we can hear your voice and we can ask, where are you, God? And we can hear you say, Hineni, here I am. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you are bringing restoration, that you don't leave us in the, in the, in the season of Tisha B'Av, but you bring us through it to bring us comfort and, and uh, the consummation of all your promises by trusting in not only the death of Yeshua, but by his resurrection life. And in his name we pray. Amen.